Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Pratush, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. I'm finishing up a long day, but that's uh, that's always how it is in VC land. <laughs> Absolutely, always a lot of a lot of deals to be done. Um, well, do you mind uh, hopping right in and giving us a brief bio and some some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, sure. So I would say, uh, even though I am in VC, I'm definitely not the traditional VC. Uh, so I currently work at Susa Ventures, but uh, I've been in hyper competitive environments my entire life. So at 13, I was the national spelling bee champion and then won the high school version of the geography bee as well. Uh, when I was an adult, I started playing some of the highest stakes tournaments the world's, in the world in poker. Um, I guess I pretty much sort of ran my own fund within the realm of high stakes poker by getting like investors to back me in super high rollers and you know nice. all these other sorts of high stakes tournaments well. Also putting out my own GP stake, which was my share of the money as well. <laughs> um, after poker, I, I got into crypto trading and I was also working on a crypto gaming startup. Um, I think that all sounds like super nice, but I think this, the underlying threat is I actually made and lost a fortune twice. Um, so like once in poker and once in crypto. I'm kind of grateful to have been able to learn so much from that rise and fall at a pretty young age. So uh, it's been a pretty interesting and circuitous journey to get to where I'm at now, which is uh, investing at a venture fund. But it's been, you know, pretty awesome, learned a lot and really like happy with where I'm at today. Um, I guess I would say in terms of big ideas I'm interested in, I guess, Christianity in general, um, specifically Christianity in the modern world, and how do you reach out to people and this sort of like, post post christian world i don't even know i don't even know where what level of post right. we're at but uh, and then I, I relationship between faith and work so this is something i'm currently exploring as well um and like how my vocation in venture like fits in with christianity um the other two are maybe a little bit more uh specific which would be i think i'm pretty interested in the idea of startup cities but then there's also this tension with the Christian idea of being planted with where you're at and really right. investing in your local community and like not necessarily just exiting because it's a better alternative. Right. So this is a tension I'm like really trying to play with. And, you know, living in San Francisco and there's a lot of issues with governance around here, it's it's kind of one that I, I'm struggling to figure out like where I exactly fall in. And this might actually be the subject of my next piece actually would be something about like, where do you fall in in terms of like, the Balaji exit versus like the stay and, you know, rebuild the city. And uh, I, I guess I'm still not sure there. And probably the last one would be on apprenticeship and mastery. And so that's kind of like a theme that's run through my entire life in terms of always finding like a master or someone to learn from and then trying to like ascend to being one of the best in the world or what I do. I love that. And, and there's a ton to unpack here. Um, and I'm a fellow, fellow geography B kid as well. So nice, uh, I, nice. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, you mentioned, I, I guess this is not on the outline, but this struck me as a really interesting question. You have spent you know, a lot of your life um, living in, in hyper competitive environments. Yeah. Uh, how do you, and, and 
this is like a very difficult question to answer. So like, it, it just, just I keep that in mind. But how do you think about finding alpha? Because you've been successful in all these areas. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think about being successful when there is a lot of competition? Totally. I think um, there's two kinds of things, two kind of questions I want to ask myself. And I think it starts with um, like, and this, I would say, I never thought about it this way explicitly, but it's actually through a conversation with um, a pretty like well-known investor person who sort of like was able to like give me the framework to do it. So I'm not going to like uh, give, pretend this is like my, <laughs> my idea. Um, but I think like when you want to think about your edge, you, you should like try to really figure out what that is. And then once you figure out what that is, it, there's sort of two follow-on questions from that, which is like, okay, where do I not want to spend any of my time? And then where do I want to, what do I want to resource with 10x order of magnitude? So like, if you're say in like investing, it's like, and you're like, okay, one of my edges in investing is like, I'm a really good um, uh, fundamental investor. And I like, I really understand markets and product and everything like that. I'm not really good at like some of the psychological stuff. It's like, maybe you want to like hand out some of the psychological stuff to some of your partners or someone else who can help you out with that and really just like double down on what your edge is. So I think it takes like a lot of self-awareness and understanding what your alpha is. Um, So like in poker, I think something I was really good at um, or one, a lot of my edges was from like developing a strategy um, and developing the superior strategy some of the other people I was competing versus Um, and maybe not as much some of the like more gut and feel type stuff. Um, and so like, that's sort of the way, like, I try to like really focus on what I was good at and try to like cover up some of my weakness. I'm not sure if I really answered your question there, but. No, I, and I think, I think generally that that's probably the, the, that, I think that's a really good answer to that question. You know, you need to find like where your edge is and you need to like, yeah. you, know, you know, how do you deal with your weaknesses or how do you reinforce your strengths? Exactly. And like, I think the, the question of like, how do you find alpha is kind of like a difficult question because a lot of times it involves like zagging where others are like going in one direction. Right. right? So like, cause otherwise what you end up getting stuck in is you're just trying to like do something that's like you at best, you're gonna be like one to 3% better than everyone right. else. So like in poker, when everyone was playing very like feel oriented and wasn't using strategy or game theory at all, like being a very game theory oriented player was like a great way to like develop alpha versus other players. And then once maybe like everyone in super high was basically playing the same way or using a lot of the same strategies that they developed, it was kind of like useful to eventually be able to deviate from that or you, you like mix in elements of like more exploitive strategies. So like some of the best players in the, at least during the time I played, were able to like mix that in. And I think that was part of their edge. So I think sometimes it's like zagging, right? So like, if every early stage venture fund is doing the exact same thing in terms of like looking for the same deals, looking for the same types of people, looking for the same pedigree, it's probably the, at best, you might be able to outperform them by like one to 5%, but you're not gonna be able to really create real alpha. And so that's when you should always be looking for the zag, I guess. Definitely. And it seems like a real problem because it's, I feel I have a feeling that a lot of VCs, and I don't think this is the case for you at all, um, but a lot of VCs are, are hyper uh, mimetic, like they, they really copy each other. And there's like a lack of like, you know, trying to think for yourself, in some sense. Yeah, no, Trim totally. following, like, right? I mean, part of that has to do with like the nature of investing. So like, venture is somewhat different than public markets and that you really do need to find like someone else to like invest in your company in like 18 months. So this was something that I like didn't have enough appreciation for before I joined the venture industry where I was like, 
I, from before joining, I was like very much like, oh, I'm just gonna be first principle, super contrarian and like figure things out for myself and it doesn't right. matter what the rest of the market thinks yeah, whatever. about things. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that, hey, like you're only gonna be able to fund them for like 18 months, especially if you're like just a seed stage fund, right? right? So some investor has to like be able to invest in them in 18 months. That means there needs to be enough progress, enough traction, something that makes people like excited about it. So like if investors hate the market they founder is and or they hate yeah. the you know like whatever their like specific things are it's it just makes the it much much harder so like if you're in a category that everyone likes or everyone in vc likes like fintech or something like that or crypto now right it, it does make like i can see why people get drawn into these mimetic games i think the issue is then it's like again hard to create alpha there's a lot of money that ends up chasing the same deals or copycats and that's when you can get sort of like Right. These narratives that form that probably aren't entirely real. And that's like why people like Bedrock and all talk about narrative violations and things like that. So I think there's like, you kind of have to like be able to hold both in your head. Like, okay, I want to be not mimetic. I don't want to just follow what everyone else is doing, but also be realistic about what can the company do. And like, also where to, what, what is my strategy and what type of fund am I, right? Like if you're a uh, A16Z or a founders fund that can yeah. literally fund every round of a company and you're like, well, I don't even care if another company will, like uh, another fund will like them in 18 months. I'll just fund them myself because I like them so much. Then that's, you have much more leeway than let's say just like a small seed stage fund that's counting on a series A fund to lead the investment later. So there's a, there's a lot of like factors in play, but I mean, I think there is, like I, that's like the bullish case for why a lot of VCs are mimetic, which, you know, I, I generally want to avoid that obviously, but I think there is like kind of a reason that people are a little bit that way. So it's something where like, you know, if, you know, VCs like as a rule, they hate uh, redheaded founders and you're like, man, <laughs> this redheaded founder, like they have the best company ever. You know, this is like, this will be a deck of corn. This is gonna be incredible. But you're like, wait, like I have to think about the meta level. If in 18 months they can't get funding because no one invests in redheaded founders, despite yeah. like, the underlying fundamentals, like you're just not going to be able to, it's not going to be successful. For sure. And I, I do think a lot of those, like, for what it's what I do think a lot of those, like, you know, traits like red, redheadedness or, you know, race <laughs> or things like that. I don't think those are really factors. Um, these yeah. I think the, I think pedigree and stuff like that does matter. So like if yeah. you've worked at big company, like big hot companies or hot startups, or if you have like an elite school in your background, there's no doubt that helps for sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, you know, you're a Christian and, um, uh, it's almost, uh, what's notable to me is, you know, I grew up in fairly rural community, fairly yep. evangelical community. So, you know, this was the norm, you know, working yep. in tech now, like this is very much not the norm. And it's almost yeah. like weird to have someone, you know, like, uh, uh, working in venture. That's like, yeah, like, uh, will is not afraid to proclaim that. Um, yeah. you know, uh, how has that experience been so far? I mean, uh, yeah, and, and that, that, maybe that's even a weird question, but um, how has it been being in tech, being a Christian, being like fairly loud about it, I would say, compared to what most people would do? Well, I guess like the interesting thing is like when I joined tech, I wasn't exactly loud about it, right? And I remember having this conversation with my wife. Um, well, she was my fiance back then. But yeah. uh, like a year and a half ago when I joined um, the previous, the startup I was at before the fund, and I was very much like, oh, like, I feel kind of lame because I'm not putting like Christian in my bio and things like that because I was kind of like scared to do it because I'm like, yeah. wait, I'm entering tech. I'm moving to San Francisco. Like, do I want to like, declare this kind of publicly? Um, and you see people like 
people that I admire, like a Brent Bishore, you know, he'll literally, the first thing in his bio is Christian. I was like, why, why do I not have the guts to right. do that? Um, so it's, it's definitely been a journey, right? Like, I don't think it was very easy. Um, and there's been moments too, where, you know, something will happen to someone, you know, or a friend or it's, it's in, in a, your company or in, um, yeah, in your company or a fund. And, you, you know, you'll want to say like, oh, I'll pray for you or like, pray, you know, something like something very personal. Yeah. You want to like pray for them. But then it's also you kind of like overstepping the line if you say it like too specifically right. or it feels like you don't want to like say that and kind of like out yourself as like a Christian or someone yeah. <laughs> who like believes in God. So I think it was kind of a, it was kind of a difficult journey. And honestly, I think part of the reason why I wrote the piece eventually was because like, I kind of was like tired of hiding that because it's such a big part of like who my life, who yeah. I am and what my identity is. And ultimately, like if that makes some people uh, like, I wouldn't say like, I guess it's, I don't know if it makes people uncomfortable. I think it's just like, it's just part of who I am. And right. I just wanted to be out there and it, I think it creates like sort of like a uh, open conversation with anyone I want to work with that they know like what really drives me and like what right. I do on weekends and like why I, you know, why I think about the things uh, the way I do and also why I'm driven to do what I do. Because I think there's sort of like, there's this perception of Pratouche that you can draw if you just look at like Wikipedia or Google or something you're like, okay, this guy was like, you know, won the spelling bee and then he's like, poker player and like now he's in vc so he must be a certain way and right. he's probably driven by like money and these other things and i think like being very upfront about my christianity and how that changed the things that matter to me and like why i do the things i do is is like important so we can like have like an honest upfront conversation rather than this very surface level like you know like bragging conversation. yeah yeah Absolutely. yeah um I, I'm curious, how do you see your work kind of intersecting with your faith and, you know, your work in venture? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, there, there's a few Bible verses about, you know, how you, there's the story of the, the, the talents or the minas where, you know, you take the minas yeah. and you like double it and it's well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and I think Peter Thiel's written about like the city of God, uh, you know, new, oh, sorry, not the city of God, but like the new Jerusalem and things like that. Right. And, I think there is something about like venture is about like creating wealth, not for just for oneself, but for others. Like it's positive sum wealth creation, right. which makes it very different than poker, which is zero sum wealth creation. And so through the startups we fund and the companies we help build, there is going to be like massive positive externalities and wealth creation for, you know, billions of people. So I think that's what gets me excited about it. And that's why I like see it as like, you know, a vocation that I can be like really proud of being part of. Definitely. I, I love that. And um, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, for the listeners, uh, the piece you wrote on cards, mm -hmm. crypto and Christ, I, it was really incredible. I really loved it. And that's actually how I found you originally. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was that journey like, uh, you know, finding Christ? Like, like, what was that like for you? Sure. I mean, I grew up in an evangelical town, Colorado Springs, but I mean, I thought Christians were stupid. <laughs> um, like I started off as a Hindu, but then eventually became like full-blown atheist, like, you know, Sam Harris, Eliezer right. Yudkowsky, all like hyper-rationalists, basically anyone who was religious, I thought was dumb. Um, and I think that, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's like as many of those types of people around these days but there was like a very much like this 2006 to 2014 right. you know like reddit like it was the zeitgeist. New atheism. yeah yeah zeitgeist right 
I don't know why it exactly flipped. That's actually kind of a question I've been like playing around with my head. It's like, why did that like suddenly change? Um, but yeah, I was very much a part of that yeah. like sphere, I would say. Um, it really took until I started watching Jordan Peterson videos in 2017 or so. And it was like, yeah. he was talking about the psychological significance of the Bible and hearing those, those lectures, it made me realize there wasn't, it wasn't dumb. Like there was like actually a like reason up. why yeah. people believe these stories. And so uh, I wouldn't have said like, oh, this is truth. I was like, okay, there's like a truthiness to it. Like it helps people live their lives. There's right. like moral value that comes out of it. And like religion isn't just like this chaotic evil force that like ruins people's lives and causes war or, you know, whatever the like cliches of like, you know, our atheism might be. And I was like, okay, these people aren't dumb, but like, I mean, I still didn't believe like there's that's, there's still a mass, there was a massive gap there. Um, and it was only like in 2019 when I kind of had, I was in a pretty dark place. Like, so I mentioned, I lost a fortune twice before. So this was like the second time. Uh, <laughs> and I was, you know, in a pretty dark place. Didn't really know, like, you know, I was contemplating suicide. Like didn't really know where I was going in my life. Um, but I was going on some dates and I ended up going to church um, with a girl who's uh, just was, I met on a dating app. Nice. And yeah, so we, we went to church and I mean, the moment I walked into church, like I had just had this like overwhelming experience where uh, like the music started and I like, you know, just felt like I was home and I like felt like tears were coming in my eyes and I couldn't explain it. And I was like, this is my first time ever in a church, actually. Uh, I mean, other than like Notre Dame or something, right, but, yeah. like during like an actual church service. Yeah. Um, and that was like pretty incredible. But it was like mostly like a curiosity more than anything i was like okay gotcha. why did it happen to me like this doesn't make sense like i didn't become a believer like that you know like i've heard many stories from people who you know the first time they walked into church or the first time they they heard the gospel they were like they converted but for right. me it was like okay i'm curious i still don't get it i still don't believe like in a man in the sky right. but like you know like let me read more about this and, right you know so i there was a couple of books I started reading. One was cold case Christianity, which was like written by this homicide detective, kind of like going through like the evidence around the gospels. And like, like I, everyone will take for like for fact or granted that everything that happened that we like know from stuff that happened in 200 BC or 300 BC right. or Alexander, or like any of these things, like all these things are like, Oh yeah, this is what happened with Plato and Socrates, right. and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, all of these have less documentation right. than the new Testament. Like, much much less like in terms of like any how any of these people live their lives or what they believed and things like that so th that was like a very interesting book for me in the, from that perspective um but like there was very much it was very much like an intellectual philosophical thing gotcha. and this sorry this isn't in the piece at all but it's just kind of like an interesting yeah. topic which is that like i i noticed there's like a lot of people i meet these days who are in the, on that intellectual philosophical journey towards christianity and they like they read these books they listen to these podcasts and they find it very compelling from an intellectual perspective but they can't get over to the the the, the faith the side there. right they can't yeah. believe in the resurrection they can't believe that jesus christ is the son of god and that's where i was at as well you know there i was like okay like i see all the arguments for why christianity is good and like it's a valuable religion i see like this argument around the evidence, but I still don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe that, you know, Jesus Christ was the son of God um, or that there even is a God, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was only when I went to a worship ceremony in 
uh, middle of July, I guess, two years, two, two and a half years ago, that uh, this worship session started is this American singer, Pat Barrett. And this was in Singapore, actually. And like the, the worship was going on. I remember the first half of it just thinking like, this, this is, <laughs> this is stupid. Like, I, I don't understand what these people are doing. Like they're all like singing and waving their hands. I mean, I've yeah. seen that in church, but like, yeah. it just felt like, it just felt very alien. Cause like, you know, the types of people who go to like a midweek session at, um, of worship, are, like, bias, you know, yeah. yeah, they're like, they're, they're like hyped up. They, they know the word, <laughs> they love this stuff. So I was like, okay, this is, this is not me. And, I was dating that girl at the time. I was like, okay, I'm going to break up with her tonight. This is dumb. Like, <laughs> I, I don't want, like, I'm just never going to be a Christian, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, they had an intermission and they were doing testimonies and this kid in with cerebral palsy came up and he just like gave his testimony about, you know, how when he was younger, like no one thought he would be able to like read or walk, like, talk and things like that yeah and he gave this very powerful speech about like how you know he'd gotten his degree he wanted to be he was going on mission trips and all these sorts of like amazing things and i just remember thinking like wow this is the type of person who could like you know hate the world you know curse god if you believe in god not even believe in god and he still like chose to glorify god and was like always grateful um and like as and he had become a believer and a lot all those things that they had said were proven not true right like he, he even though like he had been told he wasn't going to do this or that like they believed yeah. in god and all those things changed and um for me that was like okay well i if i want to give god a chance i, I or sorry not i should i should just give god a chance in the second half of this like yeah I, I don't know if you're real just prove yourself to me like if this person can believe like why can't i yeah um and it was just like some point during the second half i, I mean I think I wrote in the piece, like, I don't remember which song it was. It was like, it's like one of those famous Pat Barrett songs. Yeah. Um, good, good father, or <laughs> my life or some, it was one of those. And yeah. I just remember like, basically like time, almost like basically time stopped. And I just felt like this connection with something just like basically eternal, divine, powerful. Um, there wasn't like, you know, a voice that told me, Hey, I'm God, yeah, yeah. like, hi or something, but it was just like, Oh, you're real. Like I've yeah. connected with you and I know who you are. And that was it. Like I, the second before I wasn't a believer, the second after I knew God was real. And I was like, okay, I'm a believer. <laughs> and like, yeah, my life, I think my life completely changed in that moment. I mean, there was, there was lots of like other things that were very important. Like I would say, like I knew he was real after that moment. I was yeah. only like a month later that a different sermon where I watched, you know, Jesus healed the leper in a video that like, I realized that not only was God real, that he loved me and that's why he sent Jesus and Jesus loved me as well. And that was when it like was a complete heart transformation in terms of the type of person I was and who I am and, and like my everything, my relationship with God and everything like that. So, that's that. That's really cool. That's that's such a cool. Um, I I love that that progression, right? Like that. That's it, it's really powerful. I, I I'm curious, and this is a bit of a left hand turn, but you know, sure. envy. You know, it's yep. a sin. Uh, but you know, how concerned should we be about it? It seems like it's one of these things in the modern world that people ignore the most. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely underrated as a topic, actually. <laughs> I think uh, many of the political discussions we have, battles with organizations, 
all of these things come from envy. Um, I don't want to rehash Girardian concept of mimetic desire because like it's been done to death, like yeah. everywhere in tech circles, but like, yeah, it would be general, perhaps mimetic to go over it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think it's important. Like, I think like one thing I often think about is if you hear someone's opinion and it doesn't make sense to you, just try to trace it back to like, how does this make this person feel better about their position in the world relative to others? And you'll understand their opinion, like 99% <laughs> of cases. Um, and like, there's like one specific example that I also think about, like it was from Keith Raboy. He made this comment on a podcast a few years ago. And it, like, it's just stuck with me since, which is like, why does media hate tech so much? Right. And like yeah. the standard reply is like, Oh, it's because tech is killing its ad model. It's, you know, they, right. they, they, they hate tech because of Facebook, what Facebook did to newspapers. They hate tech because of the 2016 election. These are all like classic reasons right. that like everyone in tech thinks about. But like Raboy gave the point, which was that a lot of these journalists went to school with these tech people at elite schools. And now they're making 30K a year writing articles for BuzzFeed, living in a small apartment in Brooklyn. And some like these, these same people they went to school with are making like 500k a year to like do something for Netflix, yeah, right? Really or like it, yeah. even in even the more extreme cases, they're like someone who just coded an app and became a billionaire or like ran an enterprise yeah. software company and became a billionaire. And that sort of resentment from that, like the people you are like most closely compare yourself to is like very deep and intrinsic. And it's like very hard to escape like that feeling of ressentiment or whatever you want to call it, right? It's like, it, you, it's like deep in your bones and it's like very, very hard to escape. And like, I think a lot of the, if you look at the, the most like angry or vitriolic articles from media people, they all went to elite schools. They all, <laughs> most of them went to elite private schools too. Like yeah. they, it's not just like, oh, I, I got into Harvard from a public school. It's like, they went to like one of those like 60K a year right. private schools. So they've been in <laughs> they that world the whole time. Yeah. And they, they, they feel envious of the, like the wealth, the power of the, the tech people, but they can reframe themselves as the heroes for going after these big, bad tech people. Right. And it's like a lot of envy is like about, recasting yourself as a hero or being able to cope with your own like you know failures and insecurities um so yeah that's i guess that's like something that i just like think about a lot with envy and i think in terms of like how do we escape it or like well how do we, can we yeah. do about it i mean i do think gerard is right like the only way is through christ and your identity being in christ right like if you find your identity in your work or the things you do is always going to be subject to comparison to others but if your right. identity is in christ then you don't have anyone else to compare yourself to right you should, you should look up more and look around less yeah exactly exactly very cool um another hard left-hand turn sure web, web three <laughs> It, you know, is there something there? You know, all these terms, it's like Internet of Things. It's like I'm always like yeah, worried yeah, yeah. about it. Is it a mirage? Like, like, uh, do you have – uh, and, and I don't know how much time you spend in the space, but, you know, you are in venture right now. So. Sure, so, sure, sure, sure. Um, sure. I mean, I think it's a mix of both in terms of is there something there? Is there something a mirage? I mean, I think the reason why people use the term Web3, like the, 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 the positive view would be like, well, we're talking about re-architecting the entire internet, internet, not yeah. just building like decentralized money or financial right. asset. And we want to talk about use cases like NFTs, gaming, et cetera, et cetera. So like that all makes sense, right? On um, like decentralized everything um, right. on the internet with financials. But I guess like a lot of, I, I kind of joke that it's just a rebrand for crypto just because right. crypto has so many associations with scams and ICOs right. from 2017 yes. and all these other things. And I, but sometimes a rebrand is good. 
you know, yeah. like it creates like an aura of inevitability to it. It makes people feel like they're early adopters as well, which creates like excitement and buzz. Like I think a lot of people can like talk about themselves as Web3 investors or Web3 joining a Web3 startup and feel like, hey, we're part of like building the ground floor or something. And that creates more Something's excitement important. than like, yeah. oh, this has been around for like 10 years and like just like the negative connotations of crypto. Right. Um, and I think it makes people who are engineers as well and builders feel like better about participating in it because like gotcha. it feels like less that like, oh, we're just like like participating in this casino, um, which I guess is like in terms of the mirage thing. I think I mean, everyone knows the majority of the use case right now is still speculation or crypto yeah. as casino. Um, I guess like how, how I think about it is like. I mean, the trite VC thing, obviously, is to say the application layers is what's going to bring the next 1 billion users and like gaming and all these other things are like what's exciting. Right. I think this idea I try to hold simultaneously in, my, simultaneously in my head is that the killer app is already here and that's speculation, <laughs> you know, like that is a killer app. It's and, true. It's true. People and, love gambling. And maybe speculation takes you all the way up to bootstrapping and decentralized money or decentralized financial yeah. applications. You know, we're trying to, people are trying to do something that's never been done in history. And maybe what gets us there isn't what people want to talk about, like a decentralized Uber or gaming or something. And it's just speculation. Right. Um, so, yeah. And I think like in terms of speculation, there, I was listening to a podcast today actually by Suzu and Hasu. So Sue like was, uh, was one of the, investors at three hours capital which is the fund that incubated the gaming startup i worked on and hasu is a researcher paradigm and they were kind of talking about like no new user really wants to use bitcoin or eat really or buy it at this point right. like anyone they all, if you have 1k or 10k you want to try to turn it into 100k <laughs> and you want to use all coins to do that like yeah which means that like a lot of these things don't really have network effects or they taper off at a certain point like there's massive network effects early but there's really not at some point. Like the reason like new users, the only no new user, new user is gonna really become a Bitcoin maximalist unless everything goes 90% down and right. again and Bitcoin outperforms. Like that's how we created a new wave of Bitcoin maxis in the last 2017 to 2018 cycle, or ETH maxis, depending on which coin you had you had. So I guess like on the speculation use case, I guess the thing I think about is like. I don't, I don't know if that promise or excitement around wanting to be an early adopter ever goes away. And when there's so much like easy financialization available, like maybe people just like always try to like create the next new thing, right? Like yeah. maybe you're just like eventually like, you know, that you're always just like flipping to the next thing. And I think like a lot of, you saw that with NFT you know, profile pick projects spinning out, like just everything just is like, well, how do I get my own share of something new where I can be the early adopter? Um, right. And I guess like in a way, maybe that's bullish for like ETH and Bitcoin. They just like compete for money status. And then just like there's a cycling right. like group of just like uh, like chains that are just like keep doing new and going. technology or applications. But yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think there's some mirages. There's some real things like I personally care about decentralized money, decentralized pseudonymous like financial applications. Yeah. I like NFTs as digital virtual art, modern brands, things like that, or assets for games. But I'm not sure if any of those use cases, like the latter ones really cause mass adoption. Like maybe it is just speculation and that just like Trojan horses us into having a decentralized money. 
I think that's um, I, that, that's the best explanation I've ever heard. I really like that. I really like that. Oh, really? Yeah, focusing on speculation. I, I think that, that you know that that that's actually it's a robust use case. People like you know they like gambling. They want to be on the ground floor, and I think that's uh, that makes a, a ton of sense. Um, another hard left hand term. Uh, you know what is common knowledge in the field of professional poker that um, you know would be surprising to just lay people. Sure. I mean, I think this is a topic that. Annie Duke has talked a lot about, and she, I mean, she doesn't really have a great reputation in, in the poker space, which is kind of funny how she That's became funny. a decision, when she, how she became a decision-making guru. But I mean, she's fundamentally right about like, this is something that every poker player knows that like no one else really talks about, which is that decision-making should be based on the quality of inputs and the knowledge you have at the time. Like the result is not what matters. It's like, gotcha. what did you know when you know it? And like, can you analyze those inputs and change that? So like, hindsight bias retrofitting knowledge you only get out of the fact all of these things don't matter in terms of like understanding the quality of your decision making um she branded it as a resulting which like no one in poker i've ever talked to has ever called it that <laughs> we call it being results oriented like you don't want to be results oriented yeah. i think the reason she might have rebranded it that way is because that sounds very bad in like a corporate context like hey team we don't want to be results oriented <laughs> you know but like that's how every <laughs> poker player i ever talked to called it which is like you don't want to be results oriented you want to be focused on like your decisions like okay i knew this these are the stats i had at the time like okay did i make the right decision gotcha. so like if you think of someone as like if you know someone plays super tight and they they never bluff in the spot and that's like the only just like info you have and you folded and then like five hours later you saw some in some other information that changed your mind it doesn't mean that your initial decision was wrong necessarily you could go back and analyze okay were there things that i missed or there things that i actually knew at the time that i didn't take into account but you don't want to like just include stuff that you know is just like after the fact got it and, and this is this is very this is a difficult question to answer because it's very it's generalized advice and generalized advice is probably usually bad but do you think people in general would be better if they focus more on you know the quality of their decisions and less on the results and outcomes yeah i think so i i think that like it's it's just something that just gets bred into poker in poker because you realize how many things in life include have some variance have some luck there's elements of things you can't control and if you focus on the things you can control just over time your decisions get better and you will have you will, you will have win eventually results. yeah yeah the individual outcome is not necessarily like indicative of like long-term um, gotcha. outcomes that makes sense and you know um a lot of people make the comparison between VC and poker. Do you think yep. there are some parallels that have been useful to you? Totally. I mean, I think the results oriented thing is definitely a parallel. I think like a lot of people will lament their misses or their anti-portfolio or even like give themselves a lot of credit for the ones they did get. I think it does. The only thing that matters in terms of like how good of a decision maker is like, what did you know at the time and what did you miss? Not things that like you couldn't have foreseen. Right. Um, there, I mean, there, there's one sort of like anti-parallel, which is like in VC, like a lot of those early successes can help you build a brand that Gosh. like makes it almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy the that you will continue to be successful, which isn't the case in poker, you know, gotcha. like there's definitely some like compounding benefits of like, if you have success early, maybe you can get a sponsorship or like, you know, people like will give you more support and backing, but like ultimately if you keep playing at the same level and you're making mistakes or you're, you're not improving your game, you will be taken apart eventually. Gotcha. Whereas like 
I think some things in VC can be more self-fulfilling prophecies just because of like brand. And like, maybe you do learn to improve your decisions later on just through experience and right. being around other smart people and things like that. But I think there's, there's less of a, there, there is something where like, if you do, do just get lucky early, it, you can take advantage of it in a way that in poker, you really can't like can. the people who won the big tournaments, like they lucked out on the main event for $12 million or they won like a few big tournaments and felt like, oh, I can play in high rollers now. They all eventually got their clocks cleaned out. They lost all their money, you know, but I, yeah. I think it's not necessarily like that in BC. So gotcha. that's that's one trade-off. I guess the there's like two others I was thinking about in terms yeah. of like parallels. Um, I think willingness to take risk and bet on asymmetric outcomes. Like I think that's just like both a poker and yeah. BC thing. Like people are like... I definitely just don't fear losing money, which is probably why I lost money, <laughs> all my money twice. <laughs> but like, I think, I think that it, I think it is good to have this, like, not, not have a fear of losing money because it makes yeah. you comfortable with taking bets on companies. Right. right so right. I think, I, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then I think the last one is, I think the best poker players and the best venture investors will be able to mix this revelation and reason idea, which yeah. is like you, understand this the right you have a strategy you have a lot of reasons for why you're doing things but you mix that in with an element of like understanding like the psychological aspects of something or just like gut feel intuition and mixing both of those like will like is i think what separates some of the like very best from just like the very good got it got it and, and i'll follow that, up there will just yeah go uh, ahead uh, uh partush uh, within the last year, I wrote, read um, Maria Kornikova's book, The Biggest Bluff. Mm -hmm. And what I really came away with was how much concentration, focus, uh, elite players had to have for hours and hours mm -hmm. and hours on end. And you obviously can do that and, and analysis and strategy, you can do that. But you just touched on the part that really interested me in what I, what I, one of the things that I read that you wrote, and that is the intuition part that you thought, mm -hmm. thought that final step was that part. Yeah. And, and it seems to me, just listening to you talk, even the way you came to Christianity seems to have an intuitive feel to it. Can you yeah. talk about intuition some? Yeah, no, that's a great insight. I actually hadn't thought of that. Um, <laughs> in a way, it was like a reason thing, and then I had the intuition like you know, through faith. Um, I guess like in terms of intuition. So the funny part is like, I think if you ask a lot of poker players who played with me back in 2015, 2016, 2017, and you, they, you could get a candid answer. They would say like probably one of my biggest weaknesses was not being willing to trust my intuition and not being willing to go outside like what the correct strategy was like, okay, like, you know the solver says you always call with this hand or like game theory says you always do this or whatever and like a lot of people would say one of my biggest weaknesses and like i feel like this as well was that i wasn't able to trust my intuition because i was like no this is just the right answer because again this is when i was in my peak rationality days you know uh -huh. like this is like when i really didn't believe any of that stuff so in a way these things are intertwined even though like maybe I didn't realize it at the time. Like in some ways, I do think I would be a better poker player now because I have like this understanding of like intuition and the value of like these things outside just pure reason. Um, and I think like the, the there's, there's this Picasso saying that like learn the rules as an amateur so you can break them as a master. So like 
initially your intuition sucks like when you're starting <laughs> out doing something so like there, there is something where like a lot of people like think like oh no intuition is always right and that's not necessarily the case like when you want when you're learning something you should really understand the fundamentals the reason the strategy the reasons why you do the things you do like even in venture it's something i'm very conscious about which is like my intuition around companies and founders and things like that is probably fairly weak compared to some of the best investors right like maybe i have some like good skills from like having been a poker player like i can like i've learned a lot of like i've read a lot of books of like you know there's like things i've learned just like from investing and working on with a, a great team at susa but like compared to someone who's been investing for 20 30 years there's just like there's just like no 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 clue you know no no comparison really um so i think like what you really want to do is like learn the learn the rules to then leave the rules right like you learn how to like do all the things like you learn all the best strategies you learn everything that matters but then you know when to deviate you know when the things aren't quite adding up and i think that's and when to trust your intuition and I, and like how strong that intuition is and i think that's like the that's what separates like the true masters from just like the the very good or the average you know um and like that's why when it comes to like the truly like crazy, like, you know, contrarian outcomes in investing and all that, it's like, there is this mix of like, no one, everyone, everything on paper said, don't do it. And then like someone would just like bet on it anyway. I, I love that. It does seem particularly difficult in venture because the feedback cycles are so much longer than something like yeah, poker, yeah. right? Like, like the learning cycle just takes a lot longer. Totally. And like, you don't really have that much, um, that much rope like you know like you because you're, you're you're generally like having you're deploying after two two and a half years and then you have like you're trying to raise for another fund and, like another fund and things like that and a lot of these outcomes don't come for like eight to ten years like i've heard that a lot of people are like yeah it's easy to it's i mean it's really hard to raise fund one it's easy to raise fund two if you get some markups and then it's hard again to raise fund three because then by then like people are starting to be able to see like okay <laughs> did you actually are your companies actually good or not and i I think the the feedback loop question is like it's one that I ask basically every investor I talk to. Yeah. Um, and the answer like invariably has always been something around like, well, the markups you get are like a signal for like how good your decision making has been. Gotcha. I think there's definitely an argument that these signals have been broken over the last like 18 months, especially where like with these like very quick follow-on rounds and like how hot the market is. Um and I wish I would love to figure out a way to like have a better, quicker feedback loop because that like the greatest thing about poker is that quick feedback loop. Like you can play million hands like really fast and yeah. like you can get better much, much quicker. So I think, you know, that's just like the nature of the game. And I, I haven't figured out a way to, to cut down those feedback loops, to be honest. Sounds really tough. Um, yeah. I, another left hand turn, um, you know, should you ever bet against America? Is that just a bad <laughs> idea? Um. I just want to preface that this by saying like I love America. Like I'm <laughs> so grateful for like everything it gave me. Like I think a lot about like if I'd grown up somewhere else, so, you know, if my parents had stayed in India or like if I'd just, you know, been born anywhere else, like I consider myself like incredibly, incredibly blessed to grow up here. Like I love this country very, very much. Like I like yeah, it's it, it's one of the like most important things to me, like um in terms of like the things that I've that has shaped who I am and something that i'm just like incredibly grateful for um and i think i wrote an article so, uh, maybe a year ago or something about like you know don't bet against america even when things look bad or you yeah. know like looks like things are falling apart 
Um, and I thought the election would really change things. Like I thought, <laughs> I thought Trump might be like the Girardian scapegoat we needed to like reunite. Just exercise him, him and then. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I'm pretty worried, honestly, right now. It feels like we do have two Americas right now that yeah. are living in two completely different realities. Like, you know, and if you go one place or you go the other, you realize that you are living in like two different countries right now. Like yeah. whether it comes to like mass vaccination policies, like all these things are like, it's just literally two different countries right now. And it's yeah. like, it's very bizarre when you go from one to the other. And like, I think that's sort of emblematic of like this, this question that I've been thinking about, which is like, if 9-11 happened today, would the country actually unite or would it just be continued? Just like, we just continue to live in our two different realities. And the scary part is like, I'm not sure we would. And like, that is very concerning. And that's a very much like, a, oh, maybe it, I understand why people want to want to bet against America. You know, that's why Balaji talks about exit. He talks about like the future is, you know, Asia. This, uh, or, you know, there's like, there's, yeah. there's like, it's just not the future of America is not going to happen. It's not going to be the same as the past. I think the problem we have right now in America is that we have like a big blaming culture. So interesting. And and this comes like from everyone, you know? So like, I I think SF can be like kind of a prime example, right? Like rich people or sorry, tech people blame, you know, politics and they blame the, the gut, like the local community for voting, like, voting against housing for like not welcoming them like the the housing people the local politicians they blame tech people for like causing rents to grow up and they're like get out of here we don't want you and you know republicans blame democrats democrats blame republicans like you know there's just yeah this issue of just everyone blames each other for like the problem like why are things the way they are it's someone else's fault you know it's it's not my fault it's someone else's fault and, you know, this goes rich, rich versus poor, poor versus rich, like, you know, rich, people like, oh, like, I blame the criminals for doing this criminals, you know, everyone just blames everyone right, else, right. right. And no one is sitting up and taking like extreme ownership, <laughs> as you know, quote, job for right. work. like, no one says like, hey, I'm like a tech person in San Francisco, the reason why San Francisco this. is the way it, the reason why San Francisco the way it is, is my fault. Like, I mean, that's like an extreme position to take, but right. like it maybe reframes things and you feel like less like this sense of like lack of agency where you just like sit around blaming people and like shouting on Twitter um, about it. And maybe it like forces you to go invest and go see what you can actually do versus just like sitting around and blaming others and scapegoating others. And like the, the reality is, of course, it's not like actually your fault or it's not actually like a singular person's fault, but it's like a useful exercise to sort of think about like, hey, like, what can I do? How can I do anything to like help these situation? Right. And if you fundamentally actually thought like, hey, it's my fault, this is something I control, maybe there would actually be some like meaningful change. But I don't know. Uh, like, I we need this sort of extreme ownership. We need like a revitalization in America. I don't know what does it. Like, I don't know what reunites us. Like, you would think something like COVID could have been it, but like right. it clearly wasn't. It just like divided things it's even it further. Works. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if it's like like history would say maybe it's like a charismatic leader movement, something like that. But like, I really don't. I honestly don't know. And. I guess it's like one where I'm worried. All I know is that like, I'm not exiting. Like I'm (laughs) like ready to fight for America, fight for the places that I care about. And I know that's like, it's, 
it's maybe not the right it's maybe contrarian to like what a lot of my like smart and like really talented friends think yeah and but like i don't know i just like love this place i'm grateful for it and don't want it to see it like you know be the next europe or somewhere else where it's just like yeah it was once great you know yeah I, I love that. And it's such a good message just to remind people like, you know, you can do something, your individual actions matter. Do, do you think that, you know, your Christianity plays into that at all? Like this idea that, you know, maybe you really can do something and, and you know, your actions, individual actions do matter. Yeah, totally. I think Christianity definitely plays like a big part of it. Like, hey, we, we it's like we can bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. So like, let's let's do it. Let's Good be a job. part of yeah. it. And like the idea of being planted in your city, being part of what your like local community, all these things are like very Christian concepts that like I do think affects like how I feel about this. Like I, I would say like three years ago before I became Christian, I was very much like exit, like libertarian Whatever. mode. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. even part of like going to Singapore is like, oh, this like, you know, I would have definitely been like, oh, this is fine. Like, who cares what happens in America? Yeah. All those sorts of things. So I think like Christianity definitely changed me to feel like I need to, like, you know, be loyal to the things that like matter to me. I love that. Um, are you down for a round of overrated or underrated? Sure. Okay. Sure. Cool. Um, so I'll throw a turnout. You can just give uh, overrated, underrated, correctly rated, and then uh, just maybe a sentence or two about why. So sure. the fourth turning, overrated or underrated? I think overrated if you know about it, underrated if you don't. <laughs> so I wouldn't say it's like a manifest like way of the universe, but I think it does show you. So like the people who are like, we are in the fourth turning, that means X, Y, Z. Yeah. I don't know about that, but it does show like how Im generations impact one another, how the environment affects you. And again, it's, it's basically an embodiment of like bad times create strong men, strong men create good times good times create weak men, weak men create bad times, sort of that cycle, like within the generations. Um, so that's, that's what I think is interesting. And I think, I think it's a, I think it's a must read book, honestly, just cause yeah. it like, it, it puts you in an interesting frame of mind. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And it, it seems like there are a few historians that would, uh, even have the, uh, conviction or uh, confidence to try and put together some kind of grand totally, history totally. like that today. Totally. Um, Church's theory of social class and education, overrated or underrated? Well, underrated because I'm the one who created it. <laughs> no. um, yeah, I think like people don't really understand how much class impacts things when it comes to education, like especially when they talk about like college disappearing and all this like kind of stuff. And I, I think people don't really understand like how much like of a consumption good and part of the American dream ethos fabric college has become like it's is really not going to disappear overnight the middle class and labor class will go to college forever i think elite kid class will largely still send their kids to college i do think there will be some more dropouts and you know uh things like that like it just because there's gonna be more alternatives but i think the vast majority of kids are still going to college and I think a lot of people who talk about how they're not going to send their kids to college will still send their kids to Stanford <laughs> and Harvard at the end of the day. So, yeah. 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 I, I think you're absolutely right. And there was the, you know, there's the line like, um, uh, Obama was like, you know, my kids, you know, th there's many great colleges in the U S they go wherever they want, you know, where do they go? You know, they all go to Harvard, right? <laughs> it's just like, exactly. It's exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I really don't, I, I, I'll see if people put their money where they're about. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. I, I, I do think there will be, a good section of like children of tech people, especially tech yeah. elites who might potentially opt out of college and like sort of like 
go view things like Y Combinator, the Teal Fellowship as like alternatives. Yeah. Um, and I think, but that's like, it's just, it's like the, so in small, terms of yeah. the percentage of the population, like it's, it's very small. They also might have an outside, outside impact right. in terms of company formation and like wealth and creation and all that. But in terms of like, percentage of the population whether they're going to college or not like i don't see that like substantially changing yeah i think that's wise warren buffett overrated underrated uh i think properly rated <laughs> um so. i think yeah he's just one of the greatest you know greatest of all time any everything he says about investing is like mandatory reading for any would-be investor um although like a lot of his readings uh, reading a lot of those books during the 28th 17 2018 crypto market was like <laughs> not a good strategy because like I, you could like huddled like huddle a lot of nonsense but on the other hand you could say like oh well if you like only did the best assets like bitcoin and ETH, like maybe you wouldn't have done like a bunch of stupid icos yeah exactly um i mean of course the, like the reason i wouldn't say underrated is because like everyone knows how good he is and like how valuable his reading right. is i mean and they they, they definitely miss tech and they miss crypto yeah. Um, but on the other hand, they're also like 70 plus years old. So like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I kind of just slack. give them a, yeah, I kind of give them a pass on like not understanding crypto. Like, I mean, I think both of them are like 90 at this point. Like if, if it's, it's kind of like, okay, that they don't understand crypto. Like I, I don't understand like people who get like very angry and vitriolic <laughs> about it when it's like the fact that they're even still working and trying to invest is like you exactly. know, pretty wild to me. So I, I think there's a lot of wisdom and value in all of his reading or all of his writings and Munger, especially the same. Definitely. Um, one, one last, uh, overrated or underrated the UNC Duke rivalry. Uh, I'd say properly rated as well. Like, yeah, I mean, I had an amazing time like camping out for those games. Like the energy is like unparalleled. I I mean, I think it's the best rivalry in sports, but I think everyone also knows that already. It's like hard to say it's underrated. Um, I do think it's something like everyone who's a sports fan should definitely go out and check out a game at one point in their life that they can, because it's like, there's nothing like it. The energy is pretty incredible. So definitely. That's great. Well, producer. Thank you so much for, for coming on, taking the time to come on. Um, where should we send people? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my name, Pratush Padiga. Uh, or you can email me, Pratush at SusaVentures.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.